0: Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care. Have you joined AMDA's new initiative called Drive to Deep Describe, Optimizing Medication Use in PALTC? Join us on June 17th to learn how to design your drive to deprescribe intervention. You can access the kickoff meeting call playback, register for the June 17th meeting, and learn more at paltc.org drive the number two deprescribe. And now here's your host for Carrying on the Go, Dr. Wayne Saltzman.
1: Welcome to Carrying on the Go. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from the AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine's news magazine, Caring for the Ages. We welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, to discuss some key articles from the June-July 2021 issue, including uh, perspectives uh, from COVID-19 regarding ethical considerations, venous thromboembolism prophylaxis, and mentoring a workforce for future in geriatrics. Dr. Gaelic is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice with Shepard Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia, and their caregivers in long-term care. Dr. Gaelic, welcome back to another episode of Caring on the Go.
2: Thanks, Wayne. I'm thrilled to be here with you today.
1: Dr. Gaelic, let's start with your editorial, uh, your Caring Collaborative segment, which um, takes on what to me seems to be an eternal conversation as a geriatrician enticing our future workforce to consider the value of geriatric medicine as a career move. COVID-19 has gotten in the way of progress, it appears, and we are all familiar with the data, which has not changed, of what we have with regard to a workforce, what we're going to need um, in the future to take care of the older adult population. It's not just about physicians, but it also is about other disciplines, like advanced practitioners, what can we do? Take us uh, through your editorial.
2: Thanks, Wayne. So um, not to belabor the statistics, but a, a couple things to note. Um, we know that um, right now in the US, we have approximately 7,000 geriatricians, um, according to the American Geriatric um, Society, and, but only half of them are practicing on a full-time basis. And it's estimated we're going to need somewhere around 33,000 in order to really try to meet the demand. Um, One uh, sign of hope, actually, in the United States, approximately 15% of nurse practitioners are employed in post-acute and long-term care settings. And so um, the nurse practitioners are kind of uh, seeming to enjoy geriatrics and helping to um, help improve in terms of numbers uh, related to the workforce. Our uh, physician co- assistant colleagues um, are wonderful. The ones I work with are just great, but unfortunately, they only make up about 1% of the uh, post-acute and long-term care workforce. Hmm. And we're also experiencing shortage of uh, geriatric uh, prepared social workers, uh, We have about 7%. Wow. In terms of improving the pipeline, you know, we've all talked about the need for higher levels of reimbursement um, in the setting and mandates in terms of geriatric competencies and in different uh, clinical preparation programs, Um, but I think those things are going to be a, a long time coming. Uh, And I I went through the literature and also, you know, kind of based on some of my own experience and came up um, with a a few things that hold some promise. Hmm. So so one was uh, training in geriatrics using a scholarly concentration program. And I found out that there are nine um, schools of medicine in the U.S. that really do this and focus on geriatrics. Um, And some of their initial funding was um, through their own institutions, internal funding. Others received external grant funding and others have been supported by uh, dedicated geriatric faculty who volunteered their time to to mentor the next generation. The the other uh, way to really have these uh, kind of training or scholarly concentration programs is through our professional organizations. amda the society is a great example of this really with the futures program right Uh, and so it's one of my favorite things about um, the annual uh, meeting for amda is seeing all the futures because many of them um, will go on to have uh, long and esteemed careers in uh, geriatrics Um, Mm. for example milta little Um, One of our board members, Suzanne Gillespie, both uh, proud Futures graduates in the past.
1: Mm. And both Uh, future presidents of the society. Yes, (laughs)
2: yes. And uh, there's also geriatric workforce enhancement grants um, that are funded through HRSA, and I know many of them have helped to, to bolster that training piece. Yes. The, the last part though is really kind of a call to uh, our, all of our colleagues in post-acute and long-term care setting in terms of uh, trying to really reopen when it's feasible uh, your facilities again to trainees, whether they're medical students or nurse practitioner students or social work students um, and, and engaging these future practitioners in working in post-acute and long-term care settings. So there was a 2019 qualitative study of geriatric medicine fellows and what they described as the most significant factor in their decision to pursue a career in geriatrics was actually the mentoring they received from those from the geriatricians and others who specialized in geriatrics. Mm, that mm. was the most important piece. Mm. So I'm hoping as facilities start opening up, we're able to really um, integrate these students again, um, and trainees, uh, so that we have a next generation because Wayne, you and I are, are getting up there. What What? (laughs) Uh, we're, we're going to need help uh, soon too. Right.
1: uh, uh, Yeah. No sooner (laughs) than later. You know, um, I, I love this piece. Um, impactful. Uh, I will just put an additional shout out for geriatric psychiatrists. Um, and, uh, if any of you are thinking that, um, the, you know, how cool is a geriatric psychiatrist? I have two words for you, Leah Watson. Um, and, um, amda has played significant roles um legislatively uh in advocacy on the hill in dc with regard to the geriatric workforce uh initiatives and I, i'll just i'll just say you know my, my one of my few horn tooting um opportunities that um i took a resident one day many years ago on a home visit and it she was so impacted by it that she became a geriatrician and so uh Uh, If we all could do that or do a shampoo commercial where, you know, one is two and two tells four, then I think we'll have 33,000 by the year 2030.
2: That would be Uh, great. (laughs) You know, one of my favorite stories is with our nurse practitioner cohorts in adult Gero, the vast majority of them come in not planning for a career in geriatrics. And Mm -hmm. then they get a chance to experience it with expert preceptors um, you know both geriatricians as well as other advanced practice nurses and when we graduate a cohort i would say probably about um, a third to a quarter of them go on to a career in uh, post-acute and long-term yeah. care
1: yeah no it's all about us it's all about uh, and that sounds self-serving it's all about um, the folks who do this and are one and are truly wonderful being able to be heard as uh, as teachers and mentors and that's why your piece is so impactful yeah. Thanks, Glenn. Um, So let's let's move on to the challenges of COVID nineteen, specifically the ethical challenges. And uh, the June July uh, two thousand and twenty one issue of Caring has an article by Dr. Jim Wright, mandating COVID nineteen vaccines for PALTC staff. The ethical argument, and I have to say that you know if folks have not heard Dr. Wright speak, then reading what he has to say is definitely the next best thing. Um you know, over half a million deaths in the United States and an, an easily accessible vaccine to prevent or mitigate more, um, you know, and we are still left with ethical issues with regard to the vaccine. How can we constrain individual freedoms, i.e. not to get the vaccine in the interest of the common good? And Dr. Wright, writes about uh, precedents for success and mandating ethically and the potential for harm. Pretty intense stuff, Dr. Gaelic. What does it all mean for all of us moving forward?
2: I really liked how Dr. Wright laid out the three um, criteria in terms of ethics. So that the risk of allowing um kind of unfettered individual choice, so just people making up their mind whether they want it or not want the vaccine has to represent a significant danger to society. The other is that the benefit of the mandate, in this case the vaccine, has to be high. Mm. And then finally, um, the risk to the individual in complying with the mandate has to be low. And Dr. Wright kind of takes us through uh, a little bit of a history lesson with the measles vaccine. Um, that's an interesting part of this. Yes. Um, and then you know says the challenge was uh, back in February of 2021, uh, nationally, there was about uh, 77% of long-term care and post-acute and long-term care residents who had been vaccinated, at least with one of the doses at that point. But unfortunately, at that time, only 38% of the mm. staff had done mm. so. Mm. And so mm. he kind of makes a case of um, you know, man uh, how mandating vaccines, you know, can be looked at in an ethical way in terms of the risk of harm due to death um, with a frail population, as well as uh, you know, a population of staff that would be at risk. Um, the potential for harm now that we've had so many individuals beyond the phase three trials, but, um, kind of our own, uh, public getting vaccinated, we know that the risks, um, actually are minimal. And then, you know, lastly, um, that the risk to the individual really, uh, you know, has to be low. And, and, you know, again, we've not seen, um, a lot of serious complications related to the vaccine.
1: Mm. The media has not helped us. Uh, that is for sure. And, uh... I have confidence and I know that uh, caring readers and uh, Am the Go listeners have confidence that, you know, these vaccines are safe and effective. And I, I just really hope as I watch the news and they interview folks and they give a leading question of, um, you know, Seems like you don't think the vaccine is safe. No, I just want to wait for a little bit longer. I'm really hoping that that begins to fade away and folks realize that these vaccines are safe and effective, that our vulnerable populations are greatest at risk and um, and uh, that it's okay to get vaccinated.
2: Yeah. At the time that Dr. Wright um, wrote this article, uh, there were already over... Um, 900 million doses of the vaccine had been administered and that was six weeks ago so okay. I don't know where we are today but yeah. um, you know I think the time for waiting is over oh, and yeah. you know I, moving into the next piece I know we see um, more health systems in particular uh, larger academic medical centers kind of popping up with um, vaccine mandates so yeah. that we're starting to see them in practice as well yeah.
1: yeah. Um, approaching a billion vaccines it's just it's mind-boggling so this segues nicely into our next article by two um by two attorneys uh Feldkamp and Katz on pitfalls policy and practice for a mandatory vaccine plan um you know there's obviously a the legal perspective compared to Dr. Wright's you know um uh, uh more uh stricter ethical perspective, medical perspective, uh, Feldkamp and Katz talk about the issue in relation to the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, you know, exempting a vaccination by employers and making reasonable accommodations. It seems to get even more complicated (laughs) from this perspective. Um, lead us through this, this piece.
2: Sure. So, um, Basically, you know, kind of what they're sharing is that under current guidance from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the EEOC, private employers do have the ability to require their employees to receive a COVID 19 vaccine. However, they must, and this is without exception. make religious and a disability related exceptions. So yeah. there may be yeah. a health exception or a religious um, exemption. Mm-hmm. So in terms of reasonable accommodations, that's probably kind of the trickiest one. And you'd really want to have um, someone from the human resource uh, area um, helping with this because they are really up to date on um, how to make accommodations in the workplace or if one is reasonable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it basically says that an employee can be uh, exempt from a mandatory vaccination requirement based on an ADA disability that prevents that individual from safely taking the vaccine. Mm. And then it's the employer's responsibility then to engage in this kind of interactive process back and forth with the employee Um, to see if there could be accommodations made. Um, And they recommend really having this um, done in writing. Uh, And accommodations would be things like uh, wearing protective gear or maintaining social distance or having some capacity of remote work. Uh, And the accommodations need to be what we consider reasonable. Um, and to keep the employee at work while keeping other employees safe.
1: Mm,
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm. Yeah, no, I, what I like about this article is that one, uh, it, it, the authors have made the, these terms understandable. But also, it's applicable outside of the medical world and um, and so it kind of empowers uh, and enables uh, um, folks in post acute long-term care to be part of extended discussions. And so um, that's the value I th- for me at least that I thought it it brought to uh, it brought to the table.
2: One thing they um, also kind of brought up, which I think is important is um, under you know title seven talking about some of the religious exemptions Mm -hmm. a religious exemption does not encompass a a social or a political or an economic philosophy so it truly has to be a um, sincerely held religious belief or practice um, to qualify for a religious exemption
1: right right Um, no i like
2: that you know employers also you know they Of of course, their attorneys, they're going to advise good legal counsel and considering state laws and really trying to draft a policy that's clear um, so that prospective employees as well as current employees understand, um, you know, what is being asked of them.
1: I really love the fact that we have a um, a legal contingent in in our post acute and long term care world that participates and and you know brings these things to the table in ways that that we can understand. It's a it's a great it's a great partnership uh, that AMDA is able to uh, to put forward.
2: We're, we're fortunate, and I know that the uh, legal articles are often some of the most popular ones in caring for the ages. Mm,
0: wonderful. And now. A word from our sponsor, US Post-Acute Care.
3: Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At US Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them, now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening.
1: So our last spotlighted article is by staff writer Christine Kilgore, who's, who is um, fabulous, and uh, it's on venous thromboembolism prophylaxis. Uh, in post-acute and long-term care. Uh, so I personally enjoyed this article because it spotlights Dr. Patrick Cole uh, in uh, in this year's uh, AMDA annual conference. Uh, Dr. Cole is a geriatrician, an educator, a researcher, and the fellowship director from the University of Connecticut Health Center. Uh, he is active in post acute long-term care, and he is, if nothing else, a super nice man who is genuinely concerned about the safety and wellness of our older adult population. What does Dr. Cole have to say about reducing the risk of venous thromboembolism or blood clots, as we see on TV?
2: (laughs) Sure. So uh, the statistic that kind of surprised me is that 60% of all venous thromboembolism events in um, hospitalized patients occur in uh, really the four weeks after hospital discharge. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, So I was surprised it, it was, you know, kind of that concentrated. Um, and so he really makes a case, um, particularly since individuals are spending such short periods of time in the hospital and are spending longer periods of uh, recuperation and rehabilitation in uh, post-acute and, and skilled nursing facilities, that um, there's a, a push in terms of considering prophylaxis with either low molecular weight heparin or direct oral anticoagulants, uh, such as uh, a bixaban. And he's saying that the range really should be somewhere in about four weeks. He he also brings up the um, American Society for Hematology 2018 guidelines, which Mm. sounds like um, now they probably have some more data to go off of, and it would be not surprising that there'll be an update in the near future um, because uh, they just really focus on the acutely ill hospitalized patients in needing Mm. this. But Mm. I really... Um, agreed kind of with Dr. Cole's argument that we need to consider the post-acute setting as kind of an extension of the hospital.
1: Yeah, yeah, Um, absolutely.
2: And that just the, he also mentioned about um, for his patients that are going to be discharged to home and still need anticoagulation at that point, if they enter the facility on low molecular weight heparin, he has a discussion with them um, about, um, doing that switch to a direct oral anticoagulant. Mm, mm. And then he goes through, you know, um, the improved risk assessment in terms of high risk of, uh, VTE, as well as, you know, mentioning some risk factors, um, for bleeding. So you wouldn't want to do this with people who've had a recent GI bleed, for example.
1: And so this article is not just an example of expertise that, that our, our many members, um, Uh, bring to the table after, you know, leading segments uh, at the annual meeting. But it also gives our readers and our listeners a, a name of someone that they should look up And I would encourage folks, look up Dr. Cole and some of the articles that he has uh, written or been an author on. And uh, I think that uh, everyone will find those articles to be of great value in promoting uh, wellness and aging. Um, So, you know, Dr. Gaelic, while these spotlighted articles are, of course, fantastic, um, let's not forget about the abundance of other amazing information as well in the June and July 2021 issue of Caring, for example. Uh, Dr. Nicole Orr, who um, I kind of refer to as um, the preeminent post-acute long-term care cardiologist, who is central to an article about congestive heart failure. Dr. Jeff, in his uh, column, talks about person-centered care, a must-read. And along with Christine Kilgore, Joanne Caldi equally fabulous, is especially prolific with articles like Learning Together About Racism. A lot of focus and review of this year's AMDA conference. These reflections uh, with regard to uh, conference segments are important to recall, aren't they?
2: Yes. And because this is a double issue, um, because it covers two months, we really have it chocked full with some of the highlights um, in terms of um, the most popular topics from the conference. So, uh, Carl Steinberg wrote for Mm. us his Mm -hmm. annual conference reflections, our president, Mm -hmm. as well as our emeritus editor-in-chief of Caring for the Ages. Um, We have an excellent uh, article uh, done by Joanne Caldy, based off of um, some of the presentations at the conference about learning about racism and how to to manage that in the post-acute and long-term care setting, and lots of uh, clinical articles, which I know are um, important for the readership.
1: Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gaelic, Caring for the Ages continues to review and reflect the wonderful work being done by the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine leaders, members, and communities. Take a look at the June and July 2021 issue. Dr. Gaelic. thank you for spending your time with Caring on the Go.
2: My pleasure, Wayne.
1: References for this podcast can be found at www.caringfortheages.com. And until next time, I'm Dr. Wayne Saltzman for Caring on the Go.
0: Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post-Acute Care.